This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. So we've had all the experts on over two weeks to give you some sort of insight into what the future looks like here. Is it a boom or is it a bust? And these are really important questions. And we've covered it from many angles, from commodities to macro to economists, giving everybody's view. Now, if you remember in the beginning, I kicked this whole thing off with my thesis. And one of the core parts of my thesis is that I'm bullish. I do expect volatility. I don't think things go up in a straight line, but I'm generally more bullish than most. And I'm very bullish on technology and extremely bullish on crypto. So I really wanted to get Beth Kindig on. She was the girl who nailed it um, for NVIDIA on Real Vision. She's done extraordinarily well in predicting and forecasting tech. And I really want to get her ideas of how to play this and figure out, does she think it's a boom or a bust? Join me, Raoul Pal, as I go on a journey of discovery through the macro, crypto, and exponential age landscapes. In The Journeyman, I talk to the smartest people in the world so we can all become smarter together. Beth, fantastic to get you back on Real Vision. Thank you, Ralph. Great to be here. Yeah, it's the first time you and I have chatted, but you've been on before. You made one of the great calls of Real Vision in the recent years with NVIDIA. So I'm really looking forward to having this chat. Before we get going, let's, let's go to your background. How, how did you get here where you are today? What's your story? So 10 years ago, actually about 13 years ago now, I landed in Silicon Valley and I was a position called a tech evangelist or developer advocate, which means that you package product and you describe the products to a technical audience and they then hopefully adopt your platform or another uh, you know, use of this role is mergers, acquisitions and very large eight to nine figure partnerships. So let's say a company is going to choose a mobile application security company. How do they go through dozens of mobile application security uh, vendors and choose which one to move forward with, again, for an eight-figure, potentially nine-figure uh, vendor um, partnership. So essentially, uh, I was doing that for six or seven years, and it was brought to my attention that where that competitive analysis would be very valuable would be the public market. So to give you an idea, within three years, I was on the largest stages in Silicon Valley. I was presenting at Black Hat, Games Beat, uh, Tech Week Chicago, uh, multiple conferences basically throughout 
uh, Silicon Valley and other areas such as New York, Advertising Week, New York, those kinds of places. Uh, and I was getting press because of the ability to basically say, out of all of these cybersecurity vendors, I'm just giving you one example of a project I worked on. This is the one that has the most cutting edge technology that will give you a competitive advantage. Well, this happens to be very useful for public market investors who need to first and foremost navigate the competitive landscape. There are so many products on the market. It's very hard to sift through uh, how those products, you know, what is the what is the competitive advantage of those products, but then also which ones are most likely likely to succeed. Uh, so in 2018, I began to write for the public markets and it started to go very well right, right away. My first, one of my first articles that I ever wrote in 2018 was that NVIDIA had two impenetrable, uh, two moats, uh, two impenetrable moats. One was the GPU powered cloud and the other was CUDA and that they would become an AI powerhouse. And I repeated that publicly for years uh, on, you know, tier one media podcasts, things that are recorded uh, and archived. And then uh, another one was that Microsoft Azure, which at the time was not um, getting much attention, would compete alongside AWS due to hybrid cloud computing and their inroads to enterprise. These are just some examples of some of the very first work I did for the public markets. Uh, so once all of that started to materialize, you know, it was encouraged that I launch a research site, which is fast forward where I'm at today. I've had a research site for four to five years. Um, we've been audited uh, through a third party accounting firm, large one in San Francisco, and our results uh, far exceed basically most other ETFs or tech portfolios, uh, particularly around the fact that I do know tech and that my skill set is how do you sift through all of these products on the market and recommend only one and make sure that that one that you've recommended performs in the future. Perfect. So when you're thinking about technology, what's your overarching thesis of how, to, how do you approach it and how people should approach it? I do agree with the thematic investing approach. Uh, it's very venture capitalist inspired. And because I was in the private market, that is an excellent way to begin. I think where the problem is uh, with some of the more thematic investing is that there's not enough granularity, again, into number one, the competitive space or the competitive analysis. Number two, uh, the fundamentals, especially right now, need to be very, very clean and very straightforward. You know, those are a couple of things that we look at. And then third would be risk management. So within something like AI, which again, we've talked about for five years, we had a 45% allocation to AI going into this year. Uh, people are talking up Stanley Drunkenmiller for 29%, which is great. But just to give you an idea as to how patient we have been in building this, but at the same time, every AI stock that I've owned going into this year had an excellent bottom line. And so I don't give tech companies any leniency around the fact that they have to be a really solid business as well. Uh, and then, of course, making sure that they are on track with their product roadmap uh, that they're not over-promising, under-delivering. There's all kinds of flags to watch out for. Uh, but then, of course, tech is by far the world's most valuable industry, so it's well worth the effort. So you tend to approach it bottoms-up company by company as opposed to um, a broader thesis on why tech matters and how it outperforms or anything like that. So you're just you're generally focused bottoms-up on, on you know stock picking. 
Yes, although I will say that overall, uh, where we, we we will pick a theme. So a great example, I guess, if we could all travel back in time would be mobile. And I'll tie this into how I look at things today. If if you could go back in time around 2010 and pick a tech portfolio, there's no reason to own anything but mobile. Mobile gave us the native application of Facebook, which is when Facebook exploded. It gave us um, a search engine and Google Maps in our pocket. Google exploded at that time. Of course, Apple is mobile. So there's no reason to go looking around and spread yourself too thin here because mobile was the place to be. Now within mobile, like how do you find those big winners? Um, So for us, it's AI. And that sounds very buzzword today, but I do want to just reiterate, this has been a thesis of ours for many years on record archives. Um, But within that, this is, in you know, my humble opinion here, uh, the number one investment opportunity of our lifetimes, um, you know, the generation before us, their lifetime, the generation after us, this is an enormous opportunity and there's nowhere else to invest right now, in my opinion. We do add some diversification, but it's, like I said, we had 45% AI exposure going into this year. Uh, When we look at pullbacks, our plan and strategy is to continue to build AI. I'm the other way around. Um, Crypto is my bigger bet than that, but AI and a bunch of these technologies that I refer to as the exponential age, this this nexus where AI is, is almost a foundational layer now on top. You know, this kind of it's and everything gets built on top of it. Like you, I think it's a Cambrian moment. I think that the generative AI that's going on right now is as big a breakthrough as we've almost ever had. Maybe along with I know it sounds ridiculous, but along with the splitting of the atom, this this kind of creating infinite knowledge is something that we can't even yet get our heads around. And it ties into everything. People just think of it as chat GPT or a few things, but it's not. I mean, it's literally going to power power our world. How do you think of AI in the broader perspective? So one thing that I boil it down to, I guess, is that the impact it will have on GDP as what you're describing is unlike any technology in modern times. And it's because it will drive down costs, increase productivity. Uh, so the contribution there is infinitely higher than something like mobile. And the reason I anchor a lot back to mobile is because we all know that the fangs, if you could have invested 10, 15 years ago in the fangs, you would have. So what I'm describing is four to five X larger than the fangs. Um, So of course, what we're going to do, what will be the result is some massive winners, Um, just like I would call the fangs massive winners within mobile and AI will blow mobile you know, a way in terms of it's not only contribution to GDP, but uh, you have a $15 trillion market. Mobile was about a 4 to $5 trillion market immediately right out the gate today. We have 3x, but I think that that's very low because it's not incorporating all of the software innovation that we can't even imagine yet. But given the numbers we have today, uh, because people like to think of AI as a hype, what I would encourage people to realize is that um, in 2010, mobile was not a hype. Uh, and we're probably more like 2008 or 2009 right now uh, in terms of where we are with, um, you know, the vintage of AI in terms of where it's going to go. So just keep all that in mind that if you believe that mobile would have been the right way to position, then AI certainly will be because of, it's so much more massive in terms of its contribution and size. Also, what's really interesting about AI is all of the others, mobile, internet, 
there was no infrastructure in place. So it took time to scale. But what we're seeing is AI just fits over existing rails. So it the growth of AI is staggering. I mean, we saw the zero to 100 million chat, chat GPT. And I think it was six weeks. We've never seen the technological adoption of this speed before. Yes, agreed. And a lot of that is coming from NVIDIA right now. I think there will be competitors, uh, but we have uh, NVIDIA sitting right there. And then, of course, you know, some of these other projects, um, OpenAI, DeepMind, obviously they're very instrumental. But for the public markets, um, you know, NVIDIA has really provided uh, the H100, which cannot um, be overstated in terms of its importance for where, uh, how quickly AI is growing right now. Now, um, yeah, let's talk about some of these stocks. So NVIDIA, obviously it's moved a lot fast. How can you think about this stock in the future? You know, how do you, how do you discount some of this? Um, how do you figure out who else could walk into this market eventually? obviously they've got such a stranglehold on everything right now and there's such a backlog of chip orders but how do you how do how do people even get to grips with nvidia right now or should they just not and wait for some sort of correction or wait for something to lean into we are a very big fan of waiting for corrections uh one of the best things we did was not only recommend nvidia to your to your subscribers in january but we actually bought in october at the low and we issue real-time trade alerts so all of this is in real time and it's on thousands of people's phones. So uh, all very proven. And we bought at the October low because we were very patient. Uh, we are watching this to determine as well, like you said, do you just add, do you just close your eyes and add? Or should we be a little bit more patient and wait for that pullback? I think it also helps to put into context just why NVIDIA is so important, which is I, I would almost say their real AI moment was actually a couple of years ago with the A100 uh, because they combined inference and training onto one chip. But now the H100, uh, the reason why, to me, that was their AI moment. That was when a lot of their R&D and a lot of their success, basically, and their product releases were now cornering a market. And then the H100 has now opened up such an ecosystem of software development that it's uh, a very special moment in time. People do call it the iPhone moment. I agree with that. Uh, because of the development that can now occur. Uh, and a lot of it is not only that it, you know, greatly increased performance, but it has a transformer engine and that gets rid of having to label data sets. So you can basically find patterns mathematically. And that piece is why uh, so many um, large language models are now coming to market. The T and GPT is for transformer. Um, and so it's it's just this opening up of so much innovation and, you know, you can actually um, train a model with a transformer engine uh, in basically a day, uh, which greatly reduces the time compared to what was available before. So it's it was it was a massive drop uh, within the AI uh, community and ecosystem in terms of where you can go now. Uh, and that's why I think there was so much excitement. But like you said, how do you pick the next winners? And I think that's where we're entirely focused right now um, is being very patient and building out this AI portfolio. What do you think of the this NVIDIA bear case that's been floated around recently that their orders aren't real and all of that? I don't know if you've seen that at all. 
Yes, I have. And what I would say is one of the proxies we used uh, about two years ago or three years ago was watching Big Tech CapEx, which um, was growing very fast and was leading to basically down the funnel to NVIDIA. And then we've, if you sit on these calls with big tech companies, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Meta, they're all talking about allocating more and more of their CapEx towards AI acceleration. So for me, like, you know, this, these are verifiable budgets. This is CapEx. It's very easy to go look at these financials of big tech. All these management teams are basically saying, we're just trying to buy as many GPUs as we can possibly buy right now from NVIDIA. When I heard it and it came across my desk, my first thought was, well, we, we can track where their orders are coming from. They're coming from Big Tech CapEx, and it's been a strong proxy to use for NVIDIA's success for the last couple of years. So I'm, I don't buy it in terms of uh, there being, you know, uh, what's driving these sales compared to AWS, Azure, Meta's ambitions. Um, and I'm leaving out Google Cloud. <laughs> hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. I remember speaking to Emad Mostak from Stability AI, and you know he was just talking about. I mean, they're melting GPUs. They were, just, you know, people are driving them so hard and having to order so many. Um, he he got me into the idea of Nvidia a while ago just by saying, "Listen, like." It's a bottleneck. Everybody has to go through that pipe right now. There's no other way around it. So it <laughs> feels like, do you think that changes over time? Or is that the one play for, for that particular space? And then we look at layering out the bet elsewhere in the space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these, these are some of the most important questions, I think, to ask. And it's something that we think about daily. But I was asked on a webinar, what's the next NVIDIA? And I basically said the next NVIDIA is NVIDIA. NVIDIA. It, it, it's like Apple, though, which is that there will be an Android. And so we think the Android will be AMD. And uh, we have a large position in AMD because of we think it'll be a um, very strong contender. Uh, I would call it, I like to call it the dark horse, which is an, an underestimated competitor that comes out of nowhere. I like to give stocks nicknames. Um, but I think it's a dark horse uh, because it was with Intel. And if you look through what happened with Intel, it's mind-blowing. And the media has never appropriately reported on this, in my opinion. And it's important to understand how AMD took market share from Intel because they have this experience of taking on the 800-pound gorilla. And now they're going to take that exact same strategy and they're going to bring it to NVIDIA. So for me, I, I prefer not to choose. We have a very large position in NVIDIA and a large position in AMD. Uh, and I hope they both win. But uh, just going back to some of how AMD competed with Intel was all on design, all on architecture. Um, they basically combined a seven nanometer chiplet with a 14 nanometer that allows uh, the chip to use whatever is needed most at that time. It's called the multi-chip module. And they also beat Intel on memory bandwidth, just very power efficient. And then they put them in a headlock, if you will, if you're thinking of like a WWF match, um, by lowering the price. And it became a virtuous cycle because they came in with a more powerful chip, a more unique design that was able to be power efficient because it used the seven nanometer when it was needed, flipped back to the 14 nanometer uh, when it wasn't needed. Uh, and that multi-chip module design uh, was um, not only uh, superior on performance and power efficiency, but it came in at half the price. 
And what does that mean? It means you can just load up and buy more CPUs. Um, and so it was really the Zen 2 architecture. And they went from, when we first covered AMD, 4% data center share to now going into the 30%. Just a phenomenal comeback from Lisa Sue. So the reason that I think this is getting very uh, exciting because the MI300 will come out towards the second half of this year um, is because she's her and her team are coming at it again with an interesting architecture, which is a shared coherent memory. Um, the big headline around the MI300 is that they were able to run um, the Falcon. Uh, it's like a 40 billion parameter large language model. They were able to run that entirely in memory. So they didn't need to go back and forth with the external memory. That was really interesting because it's bringing the heat on NVIDIA in terms of just pure hardware. Where AMD has a lot of work to do, I, so I, just to be really clear, NVIDIA's H100 is a marvel of innovation. This thing is incredible. Um, if you hear Jensen Wang on these earnings calls, he'll describe how they make it. It's you know, a huge piece of equipment and there's tons of software pieces and it takes a robot to build. Um, AMD can compete on hardware though. Um, and, and they are running the world's largest supercomputer right now and they're launching the next largest supercomputer. So it's the El Capitan, uh, the fastest computer in the world is run on AMD. But where they struggle is the software development platform. So RockM is an open source development platform that is hoping to compete with CUDA, CUDA and it is very unlikely to have um, the entry that, um, this is where I, let me just rephrase it. This is where the friction can be because software developers have learned NVIDIA's CUDA. So it's more of the software side that I think AMD has work to do. Um, so we'll see how that goes, but those are some of the bullet points on why I'm bullish on AMD uh, with a caveat that we have to watch how successful the open uh, source development platform RockM is. So let's move a little bit lower down the food chain. How does this affect stuff like Taiwan Semi and, and you know, all of that side of the equation? Yeah, Taiwan Semi um, is really the only uh, fab in the world, foundry in the world that can produce these advanced nodes. So when you talk about this bottleneck, uh, a lot of the bottleneck also occurs around um, Taiwan Semi. And there's so much geopolitical um, implications to Taiwan Semi that it's this is just the world of semiconductors that some people choose to just go towards software, but it's hurting you to go to software because AI is being innovated at the hardware level. Um, but we actually have a small position in Taiwan Semi too, because it clearly all roads lead to Taiwan Semiconductor with, um, you know, the five nanometer, four nanometer, uh, three nanometer, you know, the sooner that Taiwan Semi can get on the United States soil, probably the better. But overall, the bottleneck that you've spoken of is also occurring there. So let's go further up the food chain. Okay, the applications layer of this stuff. Where do the big players, Google, Microsoft, Apple, how do they all fit into this architecture? Is it, if Taiwan Semi is the kind of, not Taiwan Semi, if NVIDIA is kind of the epicenter of this revolution right now, Taiwan Semi is like at the foundational layer because nobody can do anything without them. Then we've got the big guys with their large language models and what they're trying to roll out across all of their various applications. How are you thinking through the big players. Yes. So, uh, you know, I, I, I would say that is also one of the best questions to talk about because uh, AI will test 
uh, at tech investors because tech investors have gotten comfortable with almost the opposite because mobile is so consumer driven. AI will be very enterprise driven because the most immediate impact that AI will have is driving down costs, increasing productivity for enterprises. Uh, there will, of course, be some consumer overlay, uh, but what is really ideal uh, for a stock or for a company is if you take a consumer-facing company like Google and they can inject their AI technology into the ads machine or their Google search. So they don't have to go out and go try to get you know lots of consumers to adopt something new. Consumers will simply continue to use search. It'll just be improved search. Advertisers will continue to use Google. It'll just be improved ROI, um, easier to find your targeted audience. So those pieces are really important because in the past, uh, these innovation cycles such as mobile were more democratized. So uh, anyone could really create a mobile app. There were millions of mobile apps. Anyone could create a website. There were, I don't know, hundreds of millions, I suppose, of websites. But where will we actually, where's the product market fit? Where's the market for AI? And that's where I think big tech has a serious, undeniable advantage here which is that they are not going to create an app and go run around and try to make people adopt it. Obviously, chat GPT was um, fun and interesting, but Google doesn't really need that. They can simply improve their own ad machine and their own search engine as is not have to change, you know, behavior. Uh, Microsoft uh, is a very interesting company across all big tech because of its connections with enterprise. So if you're going to drive down costs, increase productivity, who's sitting there best to do that would be Microsoft's suite of cloud products. Um, so again, rather than going out and saying brand new, everybody adopt this co-pilot, we're just gonna we're just gonna add this to Office 365 and 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 integrate that into our product suite. So there's that friction that I think will be uh, very real for startups or other smaller companies, which is how do you get people to adopt AI uh, is not such a problem for big tech because they have the perfect product suite to just bolt that on and prove um, you know, the revenues they already have from the customers they already have. And so those are some of the things that are really important. And then of course, another piece about Microsoft that a lot of people overlook is that that investment in open AI, uh, basically because those APIs are run on Azure, there is a nice, uh, funnel or, you know, uh, Azure is downstream from all open AI APIs. So the more the open AI is successful, the more Azure will be successful from some of that usage. So there's certainly some nice connections there as well. The other side of this equation is obviously AI creates, creates infinitely more data for storage. How do we think through, so we've gone through the compute side, what about the storage side for all this stuff? Cause it's just like monstrous amounts of exponential data all the time now. Yeah, big data and analytics, uh, huge need. What I will say, uh, so the exponential rise of data, for our portfolio purposes, uh, just to be super transparent, uh, we don't think it's time just yet to build those positions. We're getting very close. If you listen to uh, some of these big data analytics earnings calls, they'll be quite clear they don't have AI revenue yet, although they're situated really for AI. And, and one of those reasons, um, if I will, is that big tech is the biggest producer of AI right now. Um, so, uh, you know, like we just talked about, um, and, and they have a lot of their own 
big data and analytics products and platforms. They don't necessarily use a Snowflake or a MongoDB uh, within their own systems. So they have their own already. What you would need is, you know, startups and smaller enterprises, you know, SMBs, whatever, all, all along those sizes of companies to really explode uh, on the AI trend before the public stocks today are really seeing that new trajectory. And that's why NVIDIA had this crazy, you know, 200% growth in data center is because their um, chips are right here, right now in extremely high demand. So in my opinion, when big data and analytics layer is ready to pop, I don't know if it'll go up 200%, but you'll see a very strong inflection point at that moment. And we don't have that inflection point yet. So I'm trying to be a little more patient. I'm wondering if we'll get one of those big sell-offs that tech like tech loves to have massive sell-offs. So I like to have a couple ideas in my pocket for when those sell-offs come down the line. Uh, big data and analytics is not something I have in the portfolio right now. Certainly, um, these will be needed, uh, especially the more different types of data uh, for machine learning models. But if you look at some of the snowflakes, the Confluent, the MongoDBs, uh, we're not seeing that inflection point yet. And I don't think we will until AI broadens away from big tech. The one that I've really interested in, in all of this kind of nexus thought, I think the company that sits in the middle of all of this is Tesla. Um, you know, even when, just think about the, uh, the data storage issue, I think it was Elon yesterday Somebody was talking about how much, you know, when Dojo fires, fires up fully and starts processing you know, all of that video data, it's like, yeah, you know, the compute side's pretty hard and it's a fight for GPUs and we have to develop our own, you know, hardware, et cetera. He goes, nobody thinks for how expensive and difficult it is to store all this bloody stuff when you've got 5 million cars on the road recording real-time streaming data that needs to feed an AI. It's, it's, it's unprecedented amounts of data. Uh, that's very true. Uh, Tesla has a lot of data. And I think the one thing I would say about Tesla is they also have a lot of competitors. Uh, so, you know, whether it's um, the auto OEMs or whether it's um, the autonomous driving systems or whether it's NVIDIA, <laughs> which I, to me is a very hard competitor right now, would be NVIDIA uh, with Dojo or um, automotive. Um, NVIDIA is proposal and it's right now being adopted across you know companies like mercedes is that they're the uh, autonomous system in the vehicle um so where tesla is very innovative very cutting edge at the forefront where i would be cautious is are they just going to be running too thin across too many fairly decent competitors i think tesla gets a lot of attention but i wouldn't count waymo out um i wouldn't count Mobileye out uh, I think NVIDIA is, um, you know, very hard to beat with when it, because while Tesla has all of the real life data, what NVIDIA has is the simulation. Um, so what they do is they run their vehicle, they run vehicles in simulation to collect data and those simulators are running all night, all day, basically training robots. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that uh, it would be much ideal to me if they were more of a pure play and they let go of like dojo entirely or uh i, I just like a lot of focus um but with that said there's a lot of exciting things going on there hey everyone we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners and then we'll be right back 
Yeah, just because they're training neural nets via video, which is an entirely different approach than trying to build some deep model of the world around you. They instead just use the real world around. You know, it's more, much more like you know a large language model deals with with stuff. And I just think it's a it's a very interesting approach. The other thing that that I find very interesting about Tesla is because it shows the way of the integration of AI and robotics. That's really what a Tesla car is. And I think people are underestimating that, the integration of AI with machines. People think of it still as like a <clears throat> enterprise B2B thing or as a consumer application, but it's going to drive everything from your fridge to your car, to the plane you go in, to almost every single thing. And that's the robotics revolution starting to happen. Yes. And they're putting it on the road. I completely agree. And do you look at robotics as one of the thematics that you look at, or is it still too early for that? For my, for the portfolio IO fund, it's too early because we do compete annually. So I have to really think about what's, you know, near term. I guess if I were to say a near term trend for AI, I'm really liking cybersecurity, uh, basically because these are agentless systems. And if you think about cyber attacks, they're obviously, um, coming, you know, brute force attacks and whatnot, they're coming from computers. So what would be the best way to find these anomalies and the threat detection would be another computer. Um, and so for me that, and then of course, if you can come in and replace fairly high paid, um, you know, high salaried security professionals, but do the job better, um, I think we're going to see that inflection point a little bit faster. I'm just coming off the top of my head as to what would be more near term. Um, and so I'm more focused probably on cybersecurity and AI right now. I don't um, have exposure yet, but we're in a deep process of researching to find that right company because there's actually so many strong contenders in cybersecurity. Uh, Microsoft actually is one of them, but best of breed. These are companies with some of the better bottom lines. They are, um, you know, they've weathered the COVID pull forward. They kept growing more than other cloud so, you know, for me, I guess if I were to say uh, robotics would probably be too far into the future uh, due to that need to perform uh, as a portfolio. But I think cybersecurity could potentially be a very big theme for 2024. The other big one that's coming down the pike, it's too early again, is the genetic sciences and AI, the application layer. But just what it does to the scientific method is kind of people haven't got their heads around that either. You just don't need a bunch of people doing hypothesis testing and writing papers when you can do things at such ridiculous scale and speed by using AI in that process. You know, stuff like the human genome stuff is just becomes very easy to deal with. Yes. And when it comes to that piece, we actually uh, don't have any exposure there either, only because um, coming from my background, we try to stick with the special, you know, being specialized. Yeah, it's really hard. I've researched that space and it's like, it's really hard to get an edge because it's, it's a it's an it's an entirely different world. So, what else interests you? What are what are the other stocks that you hold, or things that you're really looking at outside of the, some of the core bets we talked about? Where I think you know I stand out as an analyst has probably been the semiconductors. I think most people avoid them. Um, they, and this is beyond Nvidia or AMD, but uh, small cap semiconductors or those that um, might be even more two three years out on AI, uh, custom silicon things like that. Um, I really enjoy that space for a couple of reasons. One is that the prediction is that 50% of the AI economy will be captured by semis. Um, that compares to about 20, 10 to 20% on previous uh, 
tech waves. So your mobile, your internet. So I think that there's, you know, a material reason as to why to focus on them. And then I think most people avoid them. So we happen to have an edge there. Uh, so even within automotive, I like the semiconductors quite a bit. Uh, within AI, even beyond GPUs, there's other ways to look at semiconductors. I, overall, uh, for the most part, I think the last, like I said, the last 10 years has really been characterized by consumer. A lot of the big IPOs that were, you know, fully subscribed, your Uber, your DoorDash, um, your Airbnb, these are consumer companies that your friends use. You go get dinner or go have a drink and talk about these with the people around you. Uh, but where our edge is the companies nobody wants to talk about. So if you bring them up, nobody wants to hear it. Um, so I think that those really boring companies that are doing something within the supply chain differently uh, is, you know, a very interesting area and an area that I think we can safely focus on for the next few years before software uh, at the consumer level, at least, and enterprise level to some extent really takes off. Now, interesting enough, you use technical analysis as well with your work. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. And how do you think, how do you think that, that, because that's not typical coming from a kind of tech background, you know, it's typical for me, I come from a financial markets background. So how did you discover that process and how have you layered it into your investment process? Yes. So I basically, the team is that the portfolio manager comes from technical analysis and it's because we all know that tech is the world's most valuable industry. If you look at the top 10 world's most valuable companies, you know, half are going to be tech even after a massive sell-off. But the problem is, is that these, that, you know, it's so volatile that most people can't stomach the ups and downs. And we all had that reminder, right, in 2022. And that was actually, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 2022. So, I mean, that was, an, that was when we started to work with an automated hedge. Um, so our losses were less so than other tech portfolios. And we will uh, build key positions at the low and we will go ahead and trim and put money in the bank at the high. And we release these real-time trade alerts. But I can tell you that his background is Elliott Wave. Um, and he really believes very strongly that sentiment is what drives stock prices. Uh, I guess some people call it the fear and greed index, but his obviously is much more complex than that. And it's just, there's, um, you know, there's, there's waves of sentiment. And really a, a great question is where do we go now with, uh, with a stock like NVIDIA? It's up, you know, 200% this year. So it's like, how, where do you go with that? And the sentiment can get stretched. Um, to where there's no more buyers. And so it's really important to take those gains because tech can sell off 30, 40% in the blink of an eye. And so our approach was how do you safely participate in tech? That to me is the million dollar or billion dollar question that truly nobody has ever answered. Uh, instead, what you get is you get the, um, this is going to change the world, buy, buy, buy. Or you get the, um, only buy Apple, you know, and stay super safe and don't don't participate. And I think, you know, our goal as the IO fund has been to really find the middle ground, which is how can you participate safely? And we fully believe that technical analysis is very effective with tech because of that extreme sentiment. Precisely because it can fly up 100 to 200% and crash 40 to 50%. That means something is going on beneath the layer of that's very sentiment driven. People are very hyped about it. Suddenly they're in a, you know, a trough of disillusionment, if you will, or something. And so that piece 
uh, technical analysis actually uh, is most effective and really a- across most industries, I think with tech, is it's very effective. So, so do um, you tend to trim positions or remove them entirely? Or do you keep a core position because, you know, your core thesis is in place and, you know, you don't get all market timing right? So how do you do it? Do you use it to, to move up and down with your position? Yes, it's a blend of both. Uh, we actually stepped aside entirely from Google because of the antitrust. We just want to see what happens. I don't, I, you know, we could end up having to buy higher. We understand that that's a risk. But when there's these big moments in a, in a stock's near-term future, such as Google antitrust, I'm just giving you an example, we prefer just to go to the sidelines. So that one we closed. It's very, very rare that we would close and move entirely to the sidelines. Uh, to wait something out. But companies like NVIDIA and AMD and some of these other core AI positions, we um, trim at the top and buy again at the bottom. So we layer in, we're layering in all the time. I know you've been on Real Vision, talked a bit about crypto. What's your crypto thesis in all of this? Because you've held that in the fund as well. Is that right? Yes. Uh, Bitcoin for sure, Ethereum. And, um, you know, we've looked at altcoins. We have one in particular that we like a lot. I really would, I guess where, you know, if I were to talk to someone such as yourself, I think the one thing that I look for, I guess, is very big addressable market. I want to see it take all market share if possible. Um, So with the layer ones, obviously we own Ethereum, but, you know, we've dabbled, but I would want to see, you know, more active users um before because you know what does ethereum have a couple million um you know daily active users uh or act i think you know addresses um so but then you look at a company like snap or pinterest right and they have a couple hundred million so i think it needs to reach scale uh before we go in too big but i also agree with you know, decentralization. I think that, you know, Web3, this is going to be a very big deal down the line. Uh, If I were to guess, uh, I think that uh, it'll be the next innovation cycle. And it may only be because it is so mind-blowing. Like, I mean, blockchain, I think, is just so hard for people to wrap their head around that it was going to take more than a couple tries before it reaches, you know, scale. Uh, It's just basically disrupting everything that we do in every way possible. And uh, I think that in order for people to really adopt, you know, a layer one at the scale that they adopt, you know, a a social media app, let's just say, it's going to take that tipping point. Yeah, I think people do underestimate how much of the digital world goes onto blockchain rails or can potentially go. That's how disruptive it is because people think of it in terms of, cryptocurrencies or nfts and they don't really get the bigger picture this is the rails that you need for the for the digital world that we live in my view on this is that you know 60 65 billion went into vc in the last cycle a lot of that is the applications layer i think you know we don't need to build yet another layer one or even yet another layer two what we need is applications which i think is what you're saying is like you know fine yes you can have a position but for you you don't ramp up a position until you start to see that mass adoption at scale. You know, if the financial industry starts adopting it properly for settlement of equities and stuff, okay, that's a very, very big deal. Or if brand side, culture side starts taking off, we're already seeing car companies and uh, luxury goods companies, fashion companies using 
the technology to start with, but we're super early. Very early. And I think that uh, it was really neat to be in Silicon Valley during the last startup boom, uh, because, you know, you can see that the one thing about crypto that's kind of unique is that more public investors or more global investors have this opportunity to participate in early stage tech that before was only reserved for, you know, VCs, venture capitalists. So it looks exactly like all the early stage tech I've been around. I was around all kinds of early stage tech. Uh, You know, it was a huge boom going on every night. There were four to five startup events to go to. And it looks like this where there's a large failure rate, but one or two or three winners can make up for, you know, the ones that fail. And that's, of course, the VC playbook. But in general, what I'm saying is that the crypto market looks very early stage tech. I don't see anything different in that than, you know, it goes back to mobile, gaming, cybersecurity. All of those looked very similar. It's just that they weren't on the public markets. It's the entire emotional journey of a startup. We're all going to get rich. We're going to go broke. We're going to get rich. We're going to go broke. And it plays out in these public markets, which is somewhat entertaining and grabs people's attention. But, you know, if you were to go to any startup, let's say an AI startup now, speak to the founder, he's probably going through exactly the same journey as one of these cryptocurrencies, right? Yes, exactly. It it, it looks very early stage tech. I don't see anything different from all these other verticals. And, uh, you know, we're just waiting for that tipping point. So let's uh, get to where we are in markets now. Do you think, see, part of this series that we've been looking at is, you know, what's the next phase from here? There's a lot of very bearish people out there. I'm very much on the bullish side, but I'm a longer term time horizon. So I don't mind a bit of volatility in the middle. What, how do you see, let's say the next three months, three to six months playing out here? You know, I think that for a tech investor, that piece, you always have to answer because of those blow off tops and, you know, the massive meltdowns. Um, What we did is positioned even going into this year for a bull or a bear market. So what we did was just make sure our companies are defensible. Uh, They have strong, um, you know, free cash flow, gap earnings, which you would be surprised as to how many tech companies don't have gap earnings. Um, can basically weather recession are, are going to be one of the last ones standing if cash becomes very, you know, tight, if interest rates continue to rate, get, you know, raise. Um, so defensible on the bottom line, but innovative basically on the top line uh, is basically how we built the portfolio. According to the portfolio manager's position, uh, we will see a recession probably by Q1 of next year, maybe Q2. It's not going to come it's unlikely to come this month, but it'll come in the next six months. For us, uh, that's good news because we would like to load up more on AI. Again, I think that AI is a you know, five to 10 year uh, growth story. One, like, again, we've been saying this since 2018, so we've been patiently waiting for what happened in 2023. This is not us jumping on a bandwagon. This is something that has carefully crafted, and we had thousands of members positioned for AI going into this year. And We've told them very clearly this next pullback, we already have ideas as to where we want to build our AI portfolio. So that 45% allocation, maybe 60 to 70 if we get that big pullback. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that if we get more of a continuation of, of this year, great, we'll participate. And if it looks a little bit more like 2022, which is totally a possibility, then we plan to uh, increase our allocation to AI. Where are you on a scale of one to 10 of risk taking right now versus? 
what you would be if you got another sell-off? A scale of one to 10 on risk-taking. <clears throat> um, well, I guess I would say it's uh, it's really just a five both both ways because this the companies that we hold are defensible. If we do get that sell-off, what we do, what we prefer to do is hedge the entire portfolio. We will hedge up to 100% of the portfolio. So uh, if we do get that sell-off, the way that we protect our gains is we hedge quite aggressively. With what, N NASDAQ puts or something like that? Or? Uh, QLD and sometimes ARCW. It just happens to be our portfolio mix. Um, so it just happens to correlate well with the portfolio that we hold. Beth, listen, super interesting conversation. Uh, really appreciate your thoughts on all of this. Uh, let's see how the next few months play out. See whether you get the opportunity to buy the dip or you have to panic in higher up. We'll see. Thank you so much, Ralph. Fascinating uh, conversation with Beth. We covered a lot of ground. Her, clearly her core focus is AI with kind of NVIDIA at the center of everything. When we came to try and get a clear answer about a boom or bust, I think she was somewhat more on the fence, which is like, I don't know, we expect a recession and we might expect prices to fall because of it. And so she's not fully risk-taking. She's had a good run and is kind of in the watch and wait and see mode. So I think that for many of us sums up how some of us might deal with the current market conditions is participate, but maybe don't participate fully. And if you have to panic in later, you can do so. Another way I think Roger Hurst always talked about is, you know, if you've got a lot of positions and you are worried about change of market sentiment at some point, uh, whenever that comes, you can always just replace your stock and own calls instead. And then all you can lose is your call premium, particularly if you've made a lot of money uh, in the tech rally so far. But overall, there is a lot of opportunities ahead. As ever, the commodity people at this point in the cycle are very bullish on commodities. That's one thing. On tech, we know the long-term picture. That's been interesting. Crypto, well, we're at the lower end still of the cycle range, unlike tech, which has out, well, it hasn't outperformed, but relatively um, versus how it normally does. So techs maybe run ahead of others because the narrative has been so big. There is lots of opportunity out there. I think the opportunity ahead is just remember a recession is a temporary state of affairs. What lies on the other side is how the central banks and how the governments recover from it and what the economy looks like as it starts to grow again. And that's why I think, in my view, it all happened last year, but I could be wrong. But I think something like Beth, Beth's approach makes sense. Own the things you're comfortable with, and if there is a sell-off, Use that to your advantage. Anyway, good luck out there. I hope you enjoyed this last two weeks. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 